Last week, um, I, I shared with you the first three points of a message that I hope to finish today. Personal commitments for a more effective church. Because your personal commitments can make us a more effective church. Folks, we are the church. We are the church. And these, you know, when we, when we get on the threshold of a new year like this, um, and not everybody does this. Not everybody even likes to call them resolutions. I don't make resolutions. Maybe you set goals or maybe you make commitments. Maybe you prefer that terminology. But I, I think we see the, the new year, new beginnings as a time when we do things like that. We kind of set new goals. We, we say, okay, Lord God, um, uh, this is something that I'd like to do this year. These are ways that I, I want to honor you or be obedient to you or, or grow in my commitment or even the, the, the spiritual disciplines that I know are so important in my life. And for some of us, in, in some of the things we talked about last week and some of the things I'll mention to you this week, we may need to make brand new commitments in those areas. Or maybe we need to say, well, you know what, I need to raise the bar in that area a little bit in my life. I need to do a better job there. And I would encourage you as we go through these things today to, to ask God, what do I need to do in regard to each one of these? Last week we mentioned um, <clears throat> three things. First of all, um, determined to be a person of prayer, both private and corporate. And remember, my emphasis was on corporate. I think most of us practice personal prayer, at least I hope we do. That idea that the, the Bible speaks of in our own prayer closet, our own private times. But regular corporate prayer is important. And I think there, and I cited some examples last week of instances in the, in the scripture where as people came together and agreed in prayer, there were some powerful things that happened. And we need to be practicing that on a more consistent basis. We need to commit to increase our knowledge of Scripture. It's a sad fact that many who can call themselves Christians have a woeful ignorance of the Holy Scriptures. It is the book of our lives, folks. And at the very least, we need to have a familiarity with it. Better than that, we should have a knowledge of it, a true knowledge of it. And, and we should be hiding those things in our heart. We should be able to navigate our way around it. God wants, it to, wants us to apply it to our lives. He wants us to use it in our witness to others. And we can't do that if we don't know what it says. And then we need to, we need to pledge ourselves to total obedience. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 23, it says this, But I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. And sometimes we have this tendency to say, Why aren't certain things happening in my life? And sometimes the answer to that is you're not being obedient to what God's telling you to do. And then this morning I want to look at four more, more personal commitments that we can make to help us be a more effective church. And the first one is this, accept God's call to servanthood. Accept God's call to servanthood. This might surprise you, but did you know that spectator is not a spiritual gift? 
true. At least I've not been able to find it in there anywhere. Even looking at the Greek original language, I'm not able to find it in there anywhere. Servants serve in whatever way they can or are called to. And it, it's not dependent on being noticed or important or upfront. Folks, there are all kinds of things that God calls us to do. And some of them are more noticeable, like, this is what God's called me to do. Some of us have been called to do things behind the scenes that no one, a lot of people don't even know who does it. There's probably some jobs I could list that are done in the church all the time, and if I said, you know who does that, you'd be saying, boy, I really don't. But people are called to servanthood, and they're doing those things as a service to Jesus and the body of Christ. Jesus is the perfect example of what it means to be a servant. And everybody said, Amen. He was. Mark 10.45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Wrap your mind around that for a second. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about the God of the universe who put on the flesh of humanity and did things like wash His disciples' feet. Yes, amen. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, it says this. And here's, this first line is important. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't say, no, I don't want to leave heaven. I like being in charge. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It was a horrible way to die. And the scripture tells us that Jesus' life was not taken from him. He lay it down. It was a choice he made. The ultimate act of servanthood. And did you know that all God's people are called to servanthood? We're all called to serve in one way or another. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it says, Paul writing here, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Here's why. To prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. That sounds to me like God's people are all supposed to be involved in service of some kind, and my job is to prepare you to do that. James Packer, in his book, Your Father Loves You, writes this. Servant, in our English New Testament, usually represents the Greek doulos, or bond slave. Sometimes it means diakonos, which is deacon or minister. This is strictly accurate, for doulos and diakonos are synonyms. Both words denote a man who is not at his own disposal, but is his master's purchased property. That's kind of hard for us. We're a free people. We live in a free country. And 
and to, to, to think about this, but it, uh, it's a man who is not at his own disposal, but is his master's purchased property. Wait a minute. I don't belong to anybody. Bought to serve his master's needs, to be at his beck and call every moment, the slave's sole business is to do as he is told. What work does Christ set his servants to do? The way they serve him, he tells them, is by becoming the slaves of their fellow servants and being willing to do literally anything, however costly, irksome, why did he say that? Or undignified in order to help them. This is what love means, as he showed, as he himself showed at the Last Supper when he played the slave's part and washed the disciples' feet. Jesus did that. When the New Testament speaks of ministering to the saints, it means not primarily preaching to them, but devoting time, trouble, and substance to giving them all the practical help possible. The essence of Christian service is loyalty to the king expressing itself in care for his servants, for one another. And did you know that servanthood is a matter of good stewardship? 1 Peter 4.10 Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So if you're not serving and using the gifts God's given you, you're not practicing good stewardship. Did you know that servanthood is an evangelistic tool? 1 Corinthians 9.19 Though This is Paul speaking. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I am willing to serve you to bring you to Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Folks, God has called us to servanthood and we need to accept that call. The next thing we need to do, the next commitment we need to do, make is to focus on having an undivided heart. Focus on having an undivided heart. I had a friend um, when we pastored in Eastern Oregon who had moved to the community to work in the local electric co-op. He was an engineer. And he told me one time, he said, um, he had been given so many jobs that he had been um, multitasked into mediocrity. He couldn't do anything well anymore. Why? Because he couldn't narrow his focus. He was divided in, in the jobs he had to do. Folks, God has called us to have a narrow focus. We're, our lives and our hearts and our minds to be solely committed to Him. It, Exodus 34, 14, and this is the New Living Translation. You must worship no other gods, it says, for the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, is a God who is jealous about His relationship with you. Now, I think sometimes when we read the verse like that, we're looking back into those ancient times and these things they made out of stone and wood and they kind of set up and, 
You know, they had them in their houses and it says they worshipped them on the hillsides and under the trees and things like that. And so we think about these little idols. But folks, there's a lot of things in our, our lives that don't look like a little thing we've carved out of stone or wood that become an idol in our lives. Right? And it says God is a jealous God. You know, this... This whole thing was an issue that got Israel and Judah in trouble so often in the Old Testament. And God would come to them, and He very often used the symbolism of marriage. I'm the husband. Israel, Judah, you're my bride. And yet, basically what you're doing by following these other gods, by worshiping these idols, is, is you're being like an unfaithful wife. You're, you're committing adultery. You've got a divided heart. And folks, God does not tolerate divided loyalties. Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. By the way, money isn't the only thing that draws us away from God, is it? Can you think of other examples in your own minds and hearts of things that some... God is supposed to be at that, the place of centrality in our lives. He's supposed to be on the throne, but sometimes God gets pushed off there and something else becomes more important, doesn't it? At that point, we have an undivided heart, don't we? And there's a lot of things that can take that place in our lives that shouldn't. That's where God needs to be in our lives. John Maxwell said this at one point, Jesus is either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. So this needs to be our prayer and it's from Psalm 86 verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Good prayer. The next thing we need to be aware of, a commitment we need to make, exercise my faith in God in every life circumstance. We have no idea what 2017 will bring. It could take us places we never thought we'd go. Think about some of the present circumstances right now. The situation in the Middle East, and that's been ongoing, hasn't it? Who knows what will come of the fighting that's presently going on there. We do know from what the Bible tells us that Israel and that area of the world will be will play prominently in the events of the last days. And I think a lot of us are looking at that and saying, we're there. We'll have a new president in office in just a few more days. And I think we're all waiting to see how his leadership and policies will impact our country. We really don't know at this point. Terrorism continues to be an ongoing threat. And then we hear about global warming and the melting of the polar ice caps and the rise of the oceans and severe and unusual weather. And You know, they're getting 
unusually cold and snowy weather in some parts of the south right now. Have you seen it on television? It's, it's wild down there. Then there are those other countries, China and Russia and Syria and Iran and North Korea. What in the world are they up to? And what about those circumstances that are closer to home and more personal? Health issues, financial challenges, family problems. Listen to this, a list of circumstances that the Apostle Paul dealt with in his life. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 excuse me, through 29. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, because they thought 40 would kill you. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? We've got it pretty easy compared to that, don't we? And yet Paul's faith did not waver. Folks, it is in the difficult, painful circumstances of life, it's then that the genuineness of our faith is tested. Do we really believe that God is sovereignly in control? That He loves us? And that all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose? Do we really believe that? But let me tell you something. It's not always in the difficulties of life that our faith is tested. I mean, it might be stretched. And it might be tested in in a way that says, God, are, are you there? Are you working through this? But I think uh, one, of the, one of the maybe greater dangers to our faith that we face as comfortable, blessed, rich Americans who enjoy an abundance that peop- many people in the world would be envious of, that is a test of our faith as well. It's so easy in times like that to just kind of put God on the shelf. Listen, when life is going great, do you really need God? Look at the book of Judges sometimes. There's this cyclical pattern. When things were good, the people turned their backs on God. 
And it wasn't till he allowed them to be oppressed by neighboring nations that they said, Oh God, we need you again. And so you can say it may be, certainly we know that the difficulties in our lives can be a test of our faith, but folks, when life is good and rosy and and the birds are singing in the air and everything's going smooth, that's a test of our faith too, is it not? Are we faithful? Do we seek God's face like we need to be seeking God's face when we're not struggling with anything? And then the, this is the one I told you I added on because I think you had six on your outline last week. Recommit to the Great Commission. Um, I, I read a little book that, that uh, Mike Howell recommended to me. It's called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And I mentioned something from this book last week. It's by Tom, Thomas Rayner. And he said this, Some churches begin with a great heart and great effort toward the Great Commission. But the methods used become the focus rather than the Great Commission itself. As a consequence, the Great Commission becomes the Great Omission. And what he's doing is he, uh, he's done research with a number of churches that used to be but that are no longer. And he said, here's some, common fa- here's some factors that were common to all these churches that led to their demise. And this is one of them. The Great Commission becomes the Great Omission. And, and so he, you know, he said, but the methods used become the focus rather than the Great Commission itself. And when he refers to the method Jews, he's making reference to a previous chapter entitled, The Past is the Hero. And again, I quote from his writing, the most pervasive and common thread of our autopsies, that's what he calls these as he researches these churches, are autopsies of deceased churches, was that the deceased churches lived for a long time with the past as hero. Remember the glory days? Hear me clearly, he says, these churches were not hanging on to biblical truth. They were not clinging to clear Christian morality. They were not fighting for primary doctrines or secondary doctrines or even tertiary doctrines. As a matter of fact, they were not fighting for doctrines at all. They were fighting for the past, the good old days, the way it used to be, the way we want it today. You know, I attended the um, Millennial Conference in Kansas City back in... 2000. Remember all the hubbub about that? All the awful things that are going to happen when... Dr. George Hunter III made a statement in one of his messages that stuck with me. He was speaking to this idea that some churches cling to the past. You know, the way we did it back then. And the example he used was that of a church that had experienced its glory days in the 1950s. And as a result, they continued continued to do, do, do things the way they had done them in the 50s. And then George Hunter said this, if the 1950s ever roll around again, that church will be ready. Here's the problem. The 1950s are not going to roll around again. We, I, do we see the problem in that kind of thinking? And folks, as much as we loved what used to work, 
And as comfortable as we might have been with those methods, we need to accept the fact that much of what worked then is not as, as effective now. Things like, that used to be big things. I'm, my dad was involved in this. I remember when he taught Sunday school all the years I was in grade school, either fourth, fifth, or sixth grade boys. Bus ministry. My dad was the bus driver for bus ministry for years. Mass evangelism like the crusades that Billy Graham used to do. Just people do not seem to respond to these things anymore. Even remember the door-to-door stuff that we used to do? We live in a different world than when those methods were successful. We need to discover through prayer and the guidance of the Holy Spirit what will be most effective in reaching the culture and community we live in right now. That's one of the challenges we're facing as a church this very day, amen? We are. That's why Brenda shared something this morning. This might be an opportunity to impact people for Jesus as we help meet some of those needs that they experience when they're transitioning out of the hospital. And we we need to remember that Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And consider the words Jesus uses here. Action words. Go, make, baptize, teach. That's what the Great Commission is. It's about action. Folks, it requires more than wishful thinking. And, and I'm not diminishing prayer, but it requires more than just praying. We've got to pray. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. In fact, it's vital that we do that. But folks, we've got to do something beyond, we've got to put feet to our prayers. You've heard that terminology before, haven't you? It means you need to, and this is, this is still, I think, the most effective way to fulfill the Great Commission. You need to build connections with people outside the church. People who don't know Jesus. Personal friendship evangelism still works. I I don't know if you remember a while back, I gave you a a list of statistics um, saying, it it talked to people who knew Christ and had been saved at a point in their lives, and it said, you know, what worked for you? I mean, how did you come to know Jesus? And by far, most people came to know Jesus through the invitation of a friend. By far. That's what still works. Building connections with people. Being concerned for them. Caring for them. Serving them. Being willing to be a servant to them. Sharing Jesus with them. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And very often, folks, especially in the culture we live in, when, and I talked about this with the scripture last week where, where um, the scripture is not important to people anymore. Where... Uh, we, we see these efforts to delegitimize the scripture, to say, well, 
you know, God didn't really mean that, or, well, that applied back then, but not now. You know, all the, that kind of stuff. And so we've got, we've already got this doubt or suspicion about the scripture. It's kind of more, be, becoming more and more pervasive in our society. And, and so very often when we come to them and we say, I'm a Christian, right away there's this boop, little bit of a wall that comes up. And folks, we've got to show them that we really care about who they are. We care about the stuff of their lives. And we're willing to show them we care by doing things for them that meet their needs and being truly interested in who they are and what they're dealing with and the challenges they face in their lives. And then when that happens, we have an opportunity to share with them the fact that Jesus Christ can meet those needs that they have in their lives. And we might be called to be the ones, the hands and the feet that are Jesus to them and help meet those needs. In 1 Peter, we find, we find Peter telling us that we need to be ready at all times to share Jesus with people. He said, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So we've got to be ready. But we have to, when we do, when God opens the door, we've got to share with them with gentleness and respect. You know, there's this, there's this balance of grace and truth that we need to maintain when we share Jesus with people. Because sometimes people have been turned off by the church or by Christians because what we've tended to do is get out a big old Louisville slugger and take it to them. And I'm not saying we don't share the truth, but folks, we do it with grace. We do it with grace. And we do need to pray. We need to pray for people who don't know Jesus. But listen, when it comes to fulfilling the Great Commission, we not only need to pray for people who don't know Jesus, we need to pray for us. Remember the the scripture where Jesus said, the harvest is ripe, but there aren't enough harvesters. So pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send workers into his harvest field. And that's, that's a good prayer to pray. But I think so often when we pray that, we're thinking of somebody else. God, send harvesters out there while I sit in my easy chair and prop my feet up. No, you may be the answer to that prayer. In fact, you are the answer to that prayer. You know, we need to be burdened with the reality of what eternity holds for those who die without knowing Jesus Christ. Do we really believe what the Bible says about heaven and hell? And I know when the Bible talks about hell, it's, it's hard for us to imagine. You know, I think about the lake of fire. You know what the lake of fire, you've read about the lake of fire. Satan goes in there, by the way. Isn't it funny, the little pictures we have? You know, he's got this little pointy tail and horns and a pitchfork, and he's kind of in charge down there. Listen, hell and Satan are going into the lake of fire, and he's not going to be in charge. He's going to be punished for eternity. But the scripture says that is the destiny of all those who die without knowing Jesus Christ the Savior. And if that impacts us at any level, we've got to be saying, I don't want anybody to be there. 
So we need to pray for ourselves. This prayer, remember there was a point where the early apostles that were doing some preaching in the temple and the leaders of the people said, hey, don't do that anymore. We don't want to hear any more of this stuff about Jesus. If you do, you're going to be in big trouble. So what they do? They went back and got together with the church and they prayed. And here's what they said. Acts 4.29 Now, Lord, consider their threats. And here's, here's what we need to pray for ourselves. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Folks, we need to recommit to the Great Commission. And if we don't tell them, who will? If we don't live it before them, who will? Listen, there's a lot of um, deception going on in our world. And there are uh, many people who would be willing to step in and lead folks in the wrong direction and having them worship a Jesus who isn't really God at all. It, it, it's an incredibly important, essential, vital calling that God has placed in our lives. As those who are called to be ministers of reconciliation, to fulfill the Great Commission, by sharing Jesus with others, and creating opportunities through our connections with people to do that. And if I could have those this morning who are going to serve us uh, with communion. Listen, folks, we have a God who loved us so much that he sent his only son. So that there would be a solution for a sin problem in our lives that we really could do nothing about. Amen? Not a thing. Think of the futility, really, of what the Old Testament system of sacrifice was like. Have you ever considered that? What it would have been like to be one of the, the, the Jewish priests? You were, I, and I don't mean to be disrespectful in any way, but you were a glorified butcher. Because animals and animals, can, it was ongoing and over and over and over again. And there was always this issue and struggling. And I wonder if I'm good with God and if I've done all the right things and if... if and, you know, there were certain points even where God said, here's what you need to bring me, and people began to fudge. He said, sin is serious business. And so what you need to do to atone for your sin is to bring the very best from the flock, from the crop that you have, the very best. And started fudging, they started cheating. And they bring the blind ones and the lame ones and the skinny ones and the ones that were doing well. And God said, that, that won't do it. And that went on and on and on until Jesus came. And we just celebrated that, haven't we? God in the flesh. He did this unthinkable thing. And he wrapped himself in a human body, in fact, in, the, in a baby-sized human body. I mean, he didn't just show up one day with a sword at his side. He came as a baby and he was born, remember, in that manger in stinky, humble circumstances. And he, Jesus grew up and he showed us the, the great heart of the Father. 
And his work was about destroying the works of the devil. And that ultimate work in doing that was his death on the cross and his resurrection over the, over the, uh, over the tomb and sin and death and Satan himself. And it said when that happens, it was like Jesus led captives in his train. And that goes back to, to Roman victories when, when those people they conquered, you know, the conquering army would come in and behind them were these captives, usually often stripped naked and chained together and doomed. Because after the parade was over, it was like off with their heads. And, G, and, and the, the scripture tells us when Jesus died on the cross and overcame the tomb, it was like he led captives in his train. It's that picture. All the forces of darkness were put on public display. They have been defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes! And we need to live in that victory and we need to proclaim it to others, don't we? Just a reminder this morning, you need not be a member of our church to partake of communion. The Apostle Paul does remind us that a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And please hold the elements and we will partake together. And as we continue to be served this morning, several years ago in Oshawa, Ontario, Canada, George and Vera Bajensky's lives were changed forever. February 16, 1989, a very normal Thursday morning, the phone rang at 9.15 a.m. There's been an accident. It involved their son, Ben. As they approached the intersection of Adelaide and Simcoe Streets near the high school, they could see the flashing lights of police cars and ambulance units. Vera noticed a photographer and followed the direction of his camera lens to the largest pool of blood she had ever seen. All she could say was, George, Ben went home, home to be with his heavenly father. Her first reaction was to jump out of the car, somehow collect the blood and put it back into her son. That blood for me at that moment became the most precious thing in the world because it was life. It was life-giving blood and it belonged in my son my only son, the one I love so much. The road was dirty and the blood just didn't belong there. George noticed that the cars were driving right through the intersection, right through the blood. His heart was smitten. He wanted to cover the blood with his coat and cry, You will not drive over the blood of my son. Then Vera understood for the first time in her life one of God's greatest and most beautiful truths. Why blood? Because it was the strongest language God could have used. It was the most precious thing he could give. The highest price he could pay. Hebrews 9:11 through 14 but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands that is to say is not part of this creation he did not even enter by means of the blood of goats and calves but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to deaths so that we may serve the living God? While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's partake of the cup. Father, today we have, through these acts of remembrance, celebrated and honored And given thanks to you for what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary. I'm not sure, but that it will take all of eternity for us to really understand all that the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus mean for us. But we know this. Jesus has redeemed us through his sacrifice. He's the hope of the world, the forgiver of our sins, the one who intercedes for us even now, and the victor over death. And because of that, we can experience life that's truly life, and that does not end when this physical life is over, but goes on forever and ever and ever, because we do have that blessed hope of eternity in heaven. We also remember today that there are many who do not have that hope. They're lost. They don't know Jesus. They're trapped. They're slaves to sin. And they don't know what to do about it. And they try one thing, and they try another thing, and very often those things take them even deeper into that hole that they've already dug for themselves. And they don't know how to get out. And Father, we thank you today that we have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to share with people all around us. And we do know that there's a way out. And we do know that there's a hope. And we do know that there is a promise of life that's really life. There's something better, much better, infinitely better than what people are living with now. And may we be faithful to your call on our lives. First of all, to make the personal commitments that you've spoken to us about last Sunday and this Sunday, but especially to be people of the Word, people who are obedient to the call, to to the Great Commission, so that we can truly have an impact for Jesus in the world where we live. Thank you, Father, for your Word to us and the way you speak to our hearts. 
Give us, through the power of your Holy Spirit, the boldness, the courage, the commitment to do what you're telling us to do even today in response to the voice of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And now, Lord God, may you bless us with your grace and your peace as we depart this sanctuary today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for being here with us this morning, and God bless you as you go today.